blanket and some sunblock. It's time for lying on the beach on camera. Lowest state. Welcome to another edition of Lying on the Beach. I'm Steve Greenberg with Lois Whitman Hess. Our extra special guest today is someone I've known for two, three hundred years, Steve Rothhouse. If you're not familiar with Steve, he is a pioneering journalist who has covered the LGBTQ issues of South Florida and really nationally for the Miami Herald for more than two decades. He's been honored with the GLAAD Media Award for Outstanding Newspaper Columnist, as well as many other awards. The National Lesbian Gay Journalist Association inducted him into the Hall of Fame in 2019. It's the same year he retired from the Miami Herald. Since then, Steve has remained an active freelance journalist for the Herald, the uh, South Florida Gay News, and WLRN News. And Steve, welcome to Lying on the Beach. It's so great to have you back with us. Steve, thank you. Thank you, Lois. Great to see you both. And, and, and I think we're going to get right into what is the... Let's get started. Top of mind of a lot of folks, it's the elephant in the room, uh, Governor DeSantis. Not to say he's an elephant, but he's the elephant in the room right now. He recently well, up signed, and down, up and down, he's up and down. Yeah, it fluctuates his weight. Uh, recently, Governor DeSantis signed the Parental Rights in Education Bill. Some call it the "Don't Say Gay" bill. Uh, and as a devil's advocate here, that's what I'm going to be at this moment. Some might say the bill is just about keeping the topics of sex and gender away from very young children up to third grade, which is like eight years old. And what's wrong with that? Why should sex and gender be discussed with children that young in a school situation instead of at home? Why is this bill not a good thing? Steve? Well, they are not teaching sex education to pre-third graders. They, they never have been. I mean, they're, that's not part of the curriculum. When they're talking about not talking about sexual orientation. You're not talking about having very explicit discussions about how people have sex. What they're talking about is, you know, not being able to say as a child, oh, I have two mothers or I have two fathers, because that is, you know, how some people see this discussion. That, you know, to some people, it's still the idea of you know, talking about your sexuality that you have, and why do you have to talk about that? Why do you have to flaunt, you know, who, you know, that part of your life? Well, it's, as I said, as casually as my wife and I went away for the weekend. Nobody thinks of that as having, you know, sexual connotation. You know, you talk about the fact, oh, my wife is pregnant, and nobody, you know, says, oh, gee, well, we know what you did. So it's like, you know, well, how is that any different than, you know, a child saying, my two daddies and I, we went to Disney World for the weekend. Yet they would be, they would not be allowed to say that, or at least teachers would be very concerned about having those kinds of conversations. And that's where, you know, we're talking about the chilling effect of having a law like this. And, and, this wasn't a problem that needed to be fixed, I assume. It was just something that really came out of nowhere. All of a sudden, we were all surprised to hear about this, this bill. The idea, I guess, is to charge his base to, for so, so Governor DeSantis can maybe try to become President DeSantis. Is, is, is it working? Does what he's, 
what he's done accomplished his goal of raising his profile or raising his popularity? Well, clearly it's helped him raise his profile. I mean, he is all over you know, TV news. If you're looking at Fox, he's there, he's talking, he's online, he has his Twitter account, his people have their Twitter accounts. In fact, you know, it wasn't actually Governor DeSantis, it was his spokesperson, Christina Pushar, who, you know, she was the person who in defending this began talking about, you know, issues like grooming children and using that kind of language that they know will stir up the base. There's nothing new about that. When Anita Bryant ran her campaign in 1977, she and her people, they called it Save Our Children. I mean, that is, you know, the kind of buzzwords that, that will immediately strike at parents. And, you know, well, of course we don't want these people teaching our children, whatever that means. And what did they do? They showed pictures and videos at the time of San Francisco gay pride parades and people dancing in the streets and, you know, undress. And they said, do you want these people teaching your children? And you know, most parents would say, no, we don't want these people teaching our children. So, I mean, it's very easy to get that kind of reaction. Now, you know, if, if I were a parent, which I'm not, but if I were a parent and I saw a half naked man come in and dance in a classroom of third graders, I would say that person shouldn't be in the classroom either, but that's not what happens. You know, we're talking about people who come in who happen to be gay or lesbian or bisexual. Um, you know, that they, just by virtue of who they are, they feel threatened that they could lose their jobs if the kids find out that they have a partner or a husband or a wife. And that's what this kind of a law can do. Steve, I have to ask you something. Even if this law goes into effect, what do you think is the reality of what happens in the classroom? I mean, do you think that children with two moms and two dads are in more jeopardy or do you think it'll become more open and the kids will take over and make this mainstream look kids are going to do what they what they always do and they, they're going to speak from their hearts if you're talking about particularly kindergartners and first and second graders who don't they're not filtered and they're not thinking about these kinds of things and to simply say you know my older brother has a boyfriend or my older sister, you know, she has a girlfriend. I mean, and kids don't have a problem with that because why should they? I mean, this is something that you learn later. I mean, like other kinds of racism, you, you don't get, you're not born that way, but you're taught and you pick up what, what's around you when you learn these feelings by listening and observing. So, you know, if you're talking about something like that, I mean, kids will say what they're gonna say. It's a question of how does a teacher handle those kinds of discussions. I mean, most kids, it's like, oh yeah, he's gay, okay. And they move right on, they don't care. What does that mean to them? You know, and, and beyond what we're talking about with first and second, third graders, they've also left it as being very vague about children who are older. You know, the middle schoolers and the high schoolers, what they refer to as, you know, discussions of, that are age appropriate. Yeah, it's a very open-ended. They don't say what is age appropriate and they don't say w which children they're talking about. You know, we have, you know, these, you know, LGBT, you know, 
alliances, the gay straight alliances, they used to call them in, in, in schools. And, you know, it was very interesting when I started, you know, learning about this and writing about these stories in public schools in Miami and in Dade, in Dade County and in Broward County and Palm Beach to learn that these clubs, these alliances were in practically every school in every part of the county, even in areas that we would consider to be conservative neighborhoods. But those schools, the kids did this, they wanted and they would have a teacher who would become the advisor. Generally, there were people, you know, who were within the LGBTQ community or they might be an ally. But where do these kids go now? If, you know, if a particular school, if a parent feels this is not appropriate and then complains and that's where this goes. I mean, you know, it's all based upon what perhaps one parent objects to. And that's what causes this issue to blow up. What do you think will be the outcome now in terms of the public? Do you think that the public will protest or, I know we're in Florida, but you know. Well, look, there are so many issues here. And I mean, not the least of which is what happened with Disney. Right. When Disney spoke out. And I keep in mind that the Disney chairman originally had stayed out of it. He didn't want to discuss this. And as a result, all of a sudden, the LGBTQ employees at Disney, they walked out. They were very upset that their chairman didn't want to discuss it. And some of the LGBT activists nationally and statewide, uh, they were very critical of Disney for not being involved in this issue. And very quickly, the chairman said, oops, I made a mistake. I really shouldn't have said what I said, I really think that we need to protect the rights of all these people. And then immediately, that's when Governor DeSantis and the Republican legislature, you know, they turned around and said, oh, okay, uh, well, we're going to, you know, take care of you. And immediately they came up with this idea of withdrawing the special tax district, the Reedy Creek tax district that Disney has, you know, worked on, with and, and, and run since 1967, years before Disney World actually opened. And, and so they are now at war with the Republican leadership and the Republican legislature and Governor DeSantis. Do you think that could backfire though on DeSantis? I mean, Disney represents a lot of money and a lot of people. Um, and this, you know, he, he really only won the election by a relatively small margin to begin with. He's up for re-election now. Absolutely. This turn the tide on him and, and good. clout and money to, to, uh, work against, uh, DeSantis. Look, the, you know, this kind of fight within, you know, the, the state could, you know, it could, you know, affect the outcome of that election. But you also have to you know, realize that the Democrats are gonna go through a primary this summer and they are now basically fighting each other and they're raising money to just win the primary. There are three major candidates running for governor in the Democratic ticket and two of them will lose and one of them will become the nominee. What will the condition be of the Florida Democratic party when they're done? Then you know, we're, we're talking about DeSantis raising hundreds of millions of dollars. He raised, I think, $105 million just in the few weeks after, you know, the don't say gay mess. And, you know, he has obviously struck a chord with his base. And we're not talking about just people in Florida, but people who want to see him go beyond Florida. 
And, you know, he's playing to that, obviously. I mean, I don't think he in any way even hides the fact that he is interested in running for president and that, you know, yes, he has to get past 2022 and re-election before he can consider running for president in 2024. And much so of the money he's collecting is from out of the state. So absolutely. he's so much money from elsewhere in the country to support right. him, Texas and whatnot. So uh, I'm sure he's loving that as well. So I, 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 from right. his perspective, this has probably been a win-win, I would guess. I would think so. I mean, he, he's lost nothing because he didn't have strong support in the Democratic Party, certainly. I mean, uh, the, he barely won the, the election in uh, 2018. I mean, he, it, was, it was that close. You know, I mean, so, you know, what did he lose? He lost nothing with that. Now, that in itself, you might say, okay, that's not a motivator for people to come out, maybe for business people who, you know, are concerned about this kind of retaliation of a business in Florida, that, you know, if a person can do that here in Florida, what will this person be like if he's holding the presidency? You know, what? But I think that more than this now, as a result of what we've learned, you know, just just in the last day or two, whatever, and in the, in regarding Roe versus Wade, and regarding you know the Supreme Court, and where it may be headed, where where it is probably headed, and you know that could have a much greater effect on you know on on turnout and elections in November than don't say gay or Disney, but a similar effect. The takeaway for viewers is that elections have consequences, whether we're talking about choice or we're talking about gay rights or whatnot. You know, if you elect a certain group of people, it's going to go one way versus the other. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you said that, Steve, because the fact is that this is not something that should be very surprising to any of us. Right. The fact is that in 2016, when Donald Trump was running for president in his debate with Hillary Clinton, he made very clear that if he's elected president, he would appoint Supreme Court justices who would repeal and overturn Roe versus Wade. He made that totally clear in October of 2016. And I don't know if people didn't understand what that meant or couldn't believe that it was, or didn't think that he could get elected. But whatever it was, they did not turn out in great, great enough numbers to be able to offset you know, his win in those electoral college states. And, and ironically, even, it was women who helped get him elected. So they obviously didn't get the message that their rights were going to be taken away. Well, I think it's also important to realize that this is not just women who are affected. Men are affected by this too. And it's not just electing a court that would overturn Roe versus Wade. But in doing that, in appointing justices who would do that, who would overturn it totally as what we believe was going to happen, that these are the very same kinds of people who will then go after the kinds of things that affect far more people, even than you know, pregnant women and their husbands mm-hmm. or their boyfriends. I mean, you know, now people are suddenly looking past this and say, okay, Roe versus Wade, it's, it, it's done. It's, it's going to happen. They will announce it. And perhaps one or two justices may decide to make a change, but unlikely that they'll get them, you know, but they'll lose the majority in this. 
But then what's next? Who is next? You know, will the sodomy laws be next? That, you know, it wasn't until 2003 that the Supreme Court, you know, ruled that, that Lawrence versus Texas was unconstitutional and that the sodomy laws that were, you know, across probably 15 or 17 states, that they were unconstitutional. And in states like Florida, those laws have never been repealed. So Florida was one of those states that had, you know, an active, you know, sodomy law in its books, and that in the nearly 20 years since since Lawrence versus Texas, the legislature never repealed that law. So if the the current Supreme Court says, just like they said in Roe, that was a terrible mistake. You know, you don't even have to worry about gay marriage. You know, forget that. If they simply say the sodomy laws are are legal. I mean, you know, you forget about your marriage being either annulled or that you can't be recognized. You risk going to jail for, for having sex with somebody you live with, who's your, who's your legal spouse. And ironically, the, in getting rid of Roe v. Wade, they talked about how, well, it wasn't in the Constitution, so it was a bad decision. Well, gay marriage and so many other things that we now depend on were not in the Constitution either. So Interracial you, marriage is not listed in the Constitution as a right. Right. Know? Clarence Thomas, who has a white wife, you know, if, if those laws were enforced, they would not be married. Right. Steve, I have to ask you, what is it that we could do? What is it? I mean, you, I'm sure there are t days that you're sitting there in an easy chair thinking about, you know, what is it that people that are for Roe versus Wade and all the other um, uh, propositions that we want, what is it? I feel like there is something that we are missing that we could do. Well, there's something big that we're missing. And I'm glad you, you bring this up because I think about it a lot. Uh, you know, remember, I'm not an activist. I'm not going to register people to vote and I'm not going to take these cases to court. That's not what I do. You know, I'm a journalist. I report these stories. I, I let people have a forum. I, I give them that space. But when I hear, for instance, don't say gay. And I hear that you know, our groups in Florida and nationally, that their immediate reaction to this is we need to raise money so that we can challenge these, these, this case in court. And so they immediately put out a call for fundraising and that they are organizing their lawyers and they're gonna take this to court and they say they're gonna win. And I wanna know exactly what that is you know, supposed to mean in today's world. When they say they're going to take this case to court, fine. Then we find out, guess who the case has been assigned to? To a relatively new federal district judge named Alan Windsor. Okay, Alan Windsor is a Trump appointee. He's about 45 years old, appointed to a lifetime term on the court. Alan Windsor also was Florida's solicitor general who fought to preserve Florida's ban on same-sex marriage all the way up to the Supreme Court until that court said, sorry, this is unconstitutional. But that is the very same person who is now overseeing this case. So exactly what do you think is gonna happen that now that this same person who, you know, who, who fought tooth and nail to preserve the anti-gay marriage law, that he now is the person who's presiding over this case. 
is this uh, uh, and is this a smart use of money and resources and time and effort? And you know, I suggest that it's probably not. So what can people do, Lois? They can register to vote and they can make sure that no matter who is the nominee of a political party, that they support that person if they believe that that person will vote that later in their best interests. That is the only thing left to do because the court has left open with Roe versus Wade that, you know, there, that there's no constitutional right that's prescribed, but you know, it's up to Congress and the Senate to craft a law that says it is the law of the land. And you know, if that happens, then guess what? Roe versus Wade is irrelevant because there will be a federal law that says women have the right to terminate a pregnancy. But until that happens, they won't have that right. And how do you make it happen? First, you have to make sure you're registered to vote. Second, you have to make sure that your friends are registered to vote, that your families are registered to vote. And then once they're registered to vote, they have to come out and actually go to the polls and vote. And they have to vote en masse. You know, yes, we hear about gerrymandering. We hear about all of these obstacles that have been put up. Oh, now you can't have a drink when you're standing in line. All of these things that have been, you know, created in, in just in the last couple of years in, in what people call voter suppression. But you know something, ultimately people can vote. And you have to know that if you're choosing one of two people or one of three people in a particular race, you know, what is that person's you know, intent? Will they be there for you or not? And you know, to not vote is the same thing as voting for somebody who's going to vote against you because you're handing your vote to that person. And so often I hear people say, oh, I've given up or they, they're all bad, I'm not gonna vote. I mean, you can make lots of excuses. And so what, what, what I'm saying is that from my perspective, that all of the fundraising, all of the energy that's being done by all of these groups to raise money for this and raise money for that, that unless they're raising money, any of these groups and expending resources for people's health in their immediate healthcare, you know, if you're talking about making sure that, you know, that, that young gay men have protection against, you know, contracting HIV or testing them or whatever it is that you have to decide, is it the best use of your time and money? Is going to court to fight something, what is probably a, a hopeless battle, because even if you win on this level, which you probably won't, knowing that ultimately this Supreme Court is gonna decide you're wasting everybody's time and everybody's money. And the more time that's wasted, the worse it's gonna be. So, you know, take, if it, that's it, vote. Yeah, I think that's, that's all you have left. And whether we're talking about the don't, don't say gay or uh, a woman's right to choose, it Any really it. ultimately comes down to elections of consequences. And, Absolutely. and if the two candidates are both awful, well, then pick the one that's least awful. You know, you, you, that's, that's what decisions are all about. You don't always get you know, what you want, but get, pick the better of the two. That's what your, your job is as a look, voter. A couple of years ago, I sat on a panel here in Miami and, and there was, you know, mostly a group of progressive, you know, progressive voters and progressive, you know, younger people. And we had this conversation then. It was maybe two years after the Trump-Clinton election. 
But I kept hearing people talking about, you know, you have to earn my vote. You have to earn my vote before I support you. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, you can say that when you have power. You can say that when you can control an election. But when you're the person who's probably going to be the victim of whatever the electorate decides, you have to do more than say, you have to earn my vote. You have to work your rear end off to make sure that your person gets elected. Right. Then you can say, okay, now we've put people in place who we have, you know, who represent our perspectives, our viewpoints. You know, then you can take that, that kind of stance and, and say, oh, you know, we, we control our destiny, but until then you don't. Absolutely. I think that's, uh, Lois, do you agree that's a good place to, uh, to say goodbye? Uh, yes, but I would love to invite Steve back because I have about 20 more questions. So we'll have to book him again in the next few weeks because this because I think this is such a valuable, valuable uh, lesson and information that you are offering people. And we'll see if we get a lot of questions. And when we do, we're going to get you back because this not only appears on YouTube, but appears on every podcast streaming service known to mankind. So we're going to get a lot of exposure. And how do they find the podcast? They they write your name in <laughs> and my words that go out to the world. And uh, we get a lot of reaction from that. We'll put in all the keywords. Good. Thank uh, you. I want to take this moment to thank you, Steve. You were, as always, uh, a, a light of knowledge and information that we really appreciate and shines uh, in the darkness of especially Florida politics. And uh, we appreciate that. And hopefully people will heed your words and will register and will vote. Uh, I hope everyone in the sound of our voices is going to take that very seriously. And on that note, I want to say thank you, Steve. And I'm Steve Greenberg with Lois Whitman Hess. And thank we you both. Lying on the beach. Bye.